How do I think about it? I think that's part of the privilege of it is because I've never really had to think of myself as white um, because there's been no outside oppressor that's forced me to think about, you know, my race or my skin color or, you know, even my gender or even identifying with my gender. So how does white being white feel? Um, it, free, like there's a sense of freedom. Not everybody has the same access to that. This is the Mindfully White Anti-Racist Affinity Group Podcast. I'm Christine Eaton. On this show, you'll hear white people talking frankly about whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, and what they're trying to do about it. But first, let's go over a few important points. You may be wondering, what is an affinity group? It's a group of people linked by a common interest or purpose. So in this case, if you identify as white and are working towards racial justice, or are just curious and want to learn more, this podcast might be for you. The phrase mindfully white means that being present with open-mindedness, curiosity, non-judgment, and compassion were used to create a supportive space within which our guests were invited to share their stories. Throughout the episode, you'll be prompted to use mindfulness as a way to practice working with your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions with regard to this topic. As you may know, Mindfulness practice has deep roots in Buddhist teachings, which have been preserved for the last 2,600 years. As your host and a student of Buddhism, I pay respect to the Asian ancestors from whom these practices come, and specifically the Buddha's foundational teaching of the Four Noble Truths. These inspired the framework for this podcast. In that teaching, the Buddha prescribed a way to end suffering. Here, we are looking at how we can individually contribute to ending racism, a form of suffering, by seeing it more clearly in ourselves and everyday life, understanding its causes, and taking action. You will often hear that it's an issue for white people to center themselves and their voices when talking about race. This is true, and needs to be carefully examined within the context in which it happens. Here we need to hold two things as realities at the same time, that centering white voices is often problematic when talking about race, and that it is also necessary so that white people can support and learn with each other in community. Listening to and engaging with these conversations are by no means a replacement for taking the time to do the same with the Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This is an addition to that work. Please refer to the show notes for some helpful resources. Before we begin, I'd like to offer some suggestions on how to listen to this conversation. It's important to remember that our guests are not experts on racism, white supremacy, or privilege. Neither am I. We are offering our dialogue primarily as an opportunity for you, the listener, to engage with curiosity. Those being interviewed are inviting you into their perspective and direct experience. There will no doubt be times that you disagree with what's being said, feel it could be said a different way, or even find yourself becoming agitated. You're also likely to find ways that you relate, learn, and want to know more. As you listen, I encourage you to be aware of what you're feeling and thinking with a sense of openness and compassion for yourself and others. Even notice where in your body you feel it. This is an exercise in mindfulness. And I believe that if we can take this same approach with us into conversations we have in person, on social media, or anywhere really, we may be able to move along this path further together. Let's get started.
In this episode, I'll be speaking with James, a 47-year-old originally from the Chicago suburbs who is now working out of Boston and New York City, both of which are the traditional indigenous territories of Pawtucket and Wappinger, respectively. James is a TV and film actor and also a deacon at an Eastern Orthodox Christian church. You'll hear how both roles have played a part in his anti-racist journey, which he's been on for a little over 10 years. So to start, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about you, what are all the ways you identify as a human being? Mm. I mean, I think most broadly, I am James. I'm a thinker. <laughs> so not just like random thinker, but like it's how I engage. Uh, my wife would call me, I would say, she'd say I'm a sensitive guy. She'd tell me I'm compassionate. So it's better, I think, when people close to you kind of help reflect back to you what, what you are, how you are. And for the other listeners in the podcast, I, uh, cisgendered straight male. I mean, that's how I identify if that's helpful to you as well. And specifically, when you think about being a white male, could you talk a little bit more about how you think about what it means to be white? Hmm. How do I think about it? I think that's part of the privilege of it is because I've never really had to think of myself as white um, because there's been no outside oppressor that's forced me to think about, you know, my race or my skin color or, you know, even my gender or even identifying with my gender. So how does white being white feel? Um, it's free. Like there's a sense of freedom. Not everybody has the same access to that. Do you have a first memory of when you realized that there was a difference between being white and not white, that racism was, in fact, a real thing? Um, I've always known racism existed. I just didn't know that it existed in the way that it actually, like in the more complete sense of what, in which it exists. I've known about David Duke since I was in grade school. Um, it's more to the effect of how racism exists within myself. That's been one of those progressive journeys. If you're comfortable, I'm curious if we could go back a little further, because you had mentioned to me previously that you had grown up in a suburb of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And the way in which the city of Chicago was presented to you as a young person. Could you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up in the Chicago suburbs, like, at this point, I don't, any, I don't know anything about redlining. It's not taught in our schools. I don't know anything about, like, the GI Bill or property taxes, which fund our schools, you know, other forms of systemic racism. And, you know, you don't know anything about that. All you know is when you go into the inner city, there are places you don't go. Something bad will happen to you. And so I never necessarily cared to go into the city. I remember in college, people would ask, oh, did you go into the city all the time? Chicago such a great city. And I was kind of like, no, not really, you know, and... I was, you're very comfortable in your suburban existence. Kind of give that impression of like, um, out here is good, in there is bad. And without the ability to unpack why the city exists like it is, they don't teach you the systemic roots or the nature of systemic poverty and systemic racism when you're in grade school, when you're in a white suburb. Um, so sure, bad stuff does happen there, but put any group of people, you know, in a very confined space and take away all the resources and doesn't matter who you are, bad stuff's going to happen. You know, it, it just kind of reinforced that way. You know, the fish does not realize he's wet. Oh, oh I appreciate that analogy for sure. Looking more like at the causes of racism within oneself. 
Can you point to times where racist attitudes have come up and then how you approached it or didn't? Yeah. Um, just prior to moving to New York City, my wife and I, um, we went to meet, you know, some friends at a nice restaurant, like a kind of a jazz bar like over in like 137th, which was like, you know, right in the heart of Harlem. And so like every image I'd ever had of Harlem growing up has always been about like, this is where poor black people live and lots of crime happens there. So if you're white, you're not safe. So, you know, there was, there was a moment being one of very few white people in a restaurant. You know, if you've been, if we've been told your whole life that bad things happen to white people in Harlem, you're, all you're thinking about is negative thoughts. And it isn't until you kind of remove yourself from the situation. I remember um, I was doing some work as an extra. You know, one of the guys I was talking to was black, and we just started, we wound up talking about Harlem. And, you know, I don't remember exactly what I said, but he's like, well, you know, Harlem isn't all just black people. And he's like, everybody kind of comes into New York City thinking Harlem's full of black people. That's not true. You know, and I was, when I think back on that, I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I didn't say something that was just egregiously or outward, outwardly racist, but it reveals the perception that I do have of locations within the city that, you know, I've been taught are, or, where bad things are going to happen to me if I go into the, into their territory. There's just these particularly blind moments. I'm good friends with some Asian actors, and one of them, he really had to just kind of paint. He's like, the way Asians are portrayed in film, there's very little room in Hollywood for, like, Asian man, you know, who's a good guy. You know, you do, we do have examples of it, of course, but he would, he would say they're, they're emasculated in film in many respects, and the women are hypersexualized. And one particular example, I was actually on set recently, um, and one of the actors had a set of lines that was just kind of an off comment about someone's little egg roll, you know, or something like, and, and he didn't realize it until he didn't realize he was actually referring to an Asian man's genitalia until like my friend told, you know, so we see things like this. And for me, it's like, I'm always, Oh, of course that's there. And I did not see that. I really appreciate those examples. And a lot of what you, it sounds like you're talking about is a spectrum of ignorance. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to say it. And how ignorance is, is racist in itself. And yes, I imagine a lot of white people can <laughs> relate to this. And what it sounds like to me is that over a period of time, there's like uh, just ignorance, ignorance, ignorance. And then eventually, as you have these interactions in your experience, you're able to identify and if not correcting outwardly, like correcting internally that, oh, yeah, that's that's racist or this is something that perpetuates racism so that 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 ability to see, reflect and respond is becoming a little bit more uh, critical. There's a more critical eye to it. And it, it encourages learning and you start to see it in other places. <laughs> right. And like part of that journey, too, has been my own unlearning of evangelical culture, like raised in evangelicalism. So unlearning that. And one particular friend that I have, she and her wife were incredibly instrumental, very patient in just helping me deconstruct uh, homosexuality or just being gay or lesbian and like always taking the time to patiently talk with me, to never push me away. The very positive example that she had set forth has given me, I think, some of the tools to be able to learn to further develop my understanding of, like, how racism works. You know, because these are all the isms. All the isms have parallels. Yeah, there's an 
intersectionality that happens. And certainly once one has been open to you, it's easier in some ways to understand that there's more, right? So can you speak at all to the things that have been the most instrumental in you? I keep, I love this phrase, realizing the fish is wet and like wetter and wetter and wetter. Um, And again, it's a progressive journey, listening to just some of the stories of how my friends describe what it's like to be black, you know? Um, Again, just little things. Somebody once mentioned, take a month, take February where we're sort of raised, you know, to, hey, it's Black Black History Month, you know, where you talk about Martin Luther King, but do something more, like spend a month listening to Black artists, you know, for instance, and just, you know, use that as an education process. And a, a friend totally recommended, like, Public Enemy. And so it's like, I've, I was like, wow, I do see how Chuck D can be a total teacher here, you know, and then Chuck D talks about Louis Farrakhan. I was always told that Louis Farrakhan was, growing up was like, um, I don't know if terrorist was the right word, but it was always something very, very negative. Granted, I know he has said some very objectionable things. I know, especially when it comes to like some anti-Semitism. I'm not condoning that, but I know white people get a better pass over saying really reprehensible things than somebody like Louis Farrakhan ever has. But listening to like Louis Farrakhan on Phil Donahue was so enlightening, especially just to see him say like, look, I'm just up here telling you what I'm seeing. You know, I'm up here telling you what the black experience has been like. I'm being calm. And what I'm hearing from you is very, very scared language. And what you're afraid of, he says, is, you know, you're afraid of what you think I'm going to do to you. But what you're really afraid of is everything you know that being white has done to us. Wow. Yeah, that's um, there's a clear picture there of just how much reading <laughs> and um, learning has gone in from from that angle of things. Uh, and one thing that seems to be and I'm a little curious about the distinction between work, things that you go on your own to look for, to learn about versus when you have your black friends point you in a direction. Can you speak at all to maybe how having black friends has inspired you to really lean into this? This is one of the hardest things for me because I have benefited so much and I do at the same time simultaneously realize it's not up to them to educate me, but I've gotten such a good education. I'll nuance that a little bit too. So some of the advice I've been given has not strictly been from black friends. Uh, Some of it has been from white friends who have been, I would say, much more aware of their own racism for a longer period of time than I have. When I hear the phrase, do your own homework because it's exhausting. I, I hear that. I respect that. Like, I'm happy to go do my own homework. I think I've got the tools I need to do it. But part of me is like, I don't trust white people to do their homework properly. You know, I've seen white friends run to like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and like they get their own views reinforced. I would say they get some of their racism further entrenched. I'm honestly, I'm not sure what to recommend. I mean, All I can do is maybe recommend those books that have been beneficial to me. It's interesting to understand the difference in one's life between, you know, reading, which is important to read and to watch videos, do everything we can to intellectually take in information. But those people in our life um, who are the other in this case, who are members of out groups, Um, who are willing to stick there because they see there's potential and the exhaustion, right, that it can 
have, but that when they're close to you, what a gift it is when they're willing to stand by your side. So you talked a little bit about the church and not the one you're a part of now, but just to move into this, I know you wanted to talk, and I think it's important, your faith journey a little bit. So I think as it exists in the world of Eastern Orthodoxy, I mean, you will find a very, 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 very diverse group. There are uh, Orthodox churches in Africa. You think of Greece, you think of Russia, you think of varieties of different European countries. Coming from an evangelical church, more broadly, the umbrella of evangelicalism has its own roots in being built in and around white supremacy, uh, also around patriarchy. So when I became Eastern Orthodox, you know, you're, you're going to church with people from Eritrea, you're going to church with Palestinian Christians, you're going to church with Ethiopian Christians. And, you know, it's just like, oh, hey, this is a church that looks like it embodies a more broad ethic or whatnot. Well, I have a question about if you're a white person, if you're in a church and you see people of color showing up, is there this sense of like, oh, we're progressive, there's no racism here. What do you think makes it feel like a safe space for people of color to show up? Yeah, that's a great, great question, because I, I would say our church is pretty unique. So this particular church, one, it's almost entirely in English, not in a foreign language. The priest is wonderful. The priest is an advocate on, on all counts. He continually tries to be available for all people regardless. The community is also very good and welcoming. There is one example that came up once where I was like, oh, here's where we aren't a little self-aware. And I'm, this is where I'm guilty of it, too. Shortly after I joined, they asked me if I wanted to take over just being the guy who runs the library. There was a speaker one time, and there was a, there was a gentleman who was black that came. And there was a white woman who wanted to make him feel welcome. And she said, hey, this is so-and-so. Oh, hey, great to meet you. He, she's like, you run the library, right? I'm like, yeah. Do you have any books that um, offer some of the lives of the black saints? He's just like, well, maybe you could find some, help him find something. And, you know, without even taking the time to get to know this person, you know, years later, another friend in the church, she said, this is part of what white people do. It's like when a black person shows up to their church, they're trying to make them feel welcome. And it's just like, let's find all the black saints for you so that you can feel welcome, you know? And, um, you know, and we, we do have some great black saints, of course, you know, that are part of our tradition, our history, but it doesn't, you know, that implies black people are only interested in, you know, the lives of black people. Similarly, I had a black friend once say, I get in the car at an Uber and immediately he puts on a hip hop station. He's like, I kind of like classical music, you know, making the assumption of what black people would be into when you're white doesn't usually go very well, you know. Um, so just take the time to listen to and get to know who they are. Right. It's signaling that you see my color. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really hearing here, if we were to have like a takeaway from this particular conversation and some of the examples you've shared is really, how do I look at what will make this person feel safe and welcomed to the space? You know, what, what are good ways of that look like and what do bad ways that reinforce things that are not what we want to perpetuate? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think what you're saying is very poignant, you know, in the sense it's like when we're white people and we realize, hey, we're racist, but now how do we work to make everything, this can extend to all aspects of life, but like for any person, how do you, how do you work to be near and around a person and accept them as a human being, just sit with them, listen, be open to talking to them, you know, um, and 
I was working as a stand-in on a film that wasn't directed by Spike Lee, but uh, Spike Lee had some, some money behind it. It was on Netflix. It was about these kids who invent a time machine and they try to travel back and stop their brother from being shot by a cop. And I had to be the stand-in for the white cop who has his knee on the back of the guy, like face to the ground. When you're a stand-in, you stand in as the actual like lead actor while they set up lights, while they set up uh, the track, the dolly tracks, everything like that. And, you know, and then I have to get down and be like, put my hands on, uh, you know, this black teenager on the ground, on the pavement. And it's like, I have no idea who this person is, this other stand-in. Like, I'm afraid, you know, is this going to be a triggering moment for him? Like, am I going to cause him pain, you know, in this process? So, and I just said, anytime you want to get up, just let me know if you want to get up. Like, we, I, I don't care if they want us to stay down too long. You know, and eventually he did. I guess in any time, as an actor, when you're, inter when you're engaging with another person's body, you always at least talk to them and say, like, you okay with this? If it's a romantic, I'm about to put my arms around you, kiss you on the cheek. You cool here? Like, I'm cool if you're cool. Same thing on the, like, how much more potentially traumatizing is something like that, you know? Um, granted, this was all done for the sake of a film being directed to show the disadvantages the, that some of the, the young girls might have had in the public education sphere, in poorer black communities. But, you know, they're incredibly smart, smart enough to build a time machine, you know, that they can travel back in time for and try to save their brother from being shot by the cop. Wow. That that example, uh, I could feel in my body, like, tense, tensing moment as you were describing that scene. And there's the first layer of as a human being, you're going to be like, hey, look, if you're uncomfortable, let me know. But there's the second layer of awareness that you have in that moment of, I understand that even though this is a scene for a movie, that this dynamic of racism is real in this moment and that I could be triggering this person. And that awareness, again, that self-awareness because of what you've learned and the experiences you've had, I have to imagine that in that moment, maybe there was some transmission from you on some level that he understood that you knew that. I hope. I mean, we didn't work together. We didn't work together very much longer after that. We didn't have to do the scene again, but uh, we moved to something else. But, and again, that's where I'm like, I'm so grateful for those people, you know, who've taken the time to just spend working with me on the process. So that's kind of way I, I feel. And so for the, the Christian, the goal is to get to the true self, which is somebody that's you finding union with God, you know, your person in and through Christ. And so long as you're full of yourself, you have not given up yourself. And the church was built on a human being who gave himself up on behalf of all. He gave up everything on behalf. And that's what the early church did, was they sought to find the means of giving up the self for the sake of the other. And that is, to me, as a white person growing up very privileged, one of the most privileged people walking on earth as a straight cisgendered human being learning to give up that self on behalf of the other part of that giving up of self is recognizing a racism where it will continually exist and learning to give that up on behalf of the other you know that's the best thing i can do is say find those places of dis discomfort within yourself and learn to sit with that 
and ask yourself, why do you feel uncomfortable? And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. You're actually supposed to. That's like part of it. It definitely closes the gap too, but you were saying earlier, you know, as a child, David Duke, he's bad, he's racist, right? And that we think that these types of people, neo-Nazis, David Dukes, and they're the racists. But like, it's a spectrum and we all have it. And that's part of what this space is designed to do is say that it is important for white people to speak about how difficult this can be, how it's a struggle to do it, how we're really trying and how we fail and how we succeed and how we can allow other people to feel a sense of like, you know what, I'm going to take a chance too. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to listen because I can relate to this and not feel like, you know, I'm going to be shot down for every way that I'm not perfect in this moment, you know, that there's a spectrum of it. And so I really appreciate everything you shared. You're welcome. That concludes the interview. Thank you for listening. If you have additional time, I now invite you on a guided meditation with me to reflect on and process what you just heard. Please find a comfortable position, one you can stay in for about 10 minutes. Gently close your eyes or gaze down towards the floor. Notice any tension in your face and soften. Bring attention to your hands. Are they open or closed? Rest them in a relaxed position. Feel your body being held and supported by the floor and whatever you're sitting, laying, or standing on. Allow yourself to sink a bit deeper into that feeling. Notice your breathing. Without trying to change it, just become aware of its rhythm. Stay with the breath, breathing in, breathing out. Take a moment to recall a time in the interview that is memorable to you. Invite this memory into your awareness. If nothing specific comes to mind or many moments come to mind, Continue to rest your attention on your breath.
As you sit with this memory, what about it makes it stick with you? Perhaps a word, phrase, or image comes to mind. Note it with a compassionate curiosity. Notice how you feel. Perhaps you feel content, disappointed, frustrated, joyful, or something else. From time to time, it may feel helpful to go back to that feeling of being supported by the floor or whatever you're sitting, laying, or standing on. Be aware if there's anywhere in your body where this feeling is showing up right now do so with a caring and friendly attention. When the time feels right, release the memory like a balloon up into the sky or a leaf into a stream. How do you feel right now? Notice what is present. Ease, tension, anger, or delight. Perhaps something else. Coming back to the breath. Allow any feelings to pass through like a current, like a wave. Using the breath as a filter for the mind and body. 
keeping what's beneficial and letting go of what's harmful. If anything feels stuck, hold it with that compassionate curiosity for a moment. Just breathe, breathing in, breathing out for another minute or two. Thank you for joining me in this guided meditation. As we close out the first episode of this series, it was suggested to me that perhaps I share my reflection based on listening to the conversation that I had with James as a way to model what I've asked you all to do in the guided meditation we just did together. And what was coming up for me which I could really feel quite strongly in my heart and my throat, like butterflies and tension, was a sense of really wanting to change many things about how I spoke and what I said, not necessarily in ways that would have changed the content and the spirit of what I was asking, but just because I felt that I might have been too wordy, or I might have wanted to use a different term, like instead of out-group, maybe marginalized people. And there was a reference to uh, when James and I were talking about his 
friends of color who really provide so much useful information to him, I was a little concerned that it sounded like I was advocating that people go get black friends. <laughs> so these are areas that in my mind, and it's probably not all of them that other people might pick up on, but they were certainly ones that were popping up in my head that I was working to release with a sense of compassion in my mind that it's okay that I am a recovering perfectionist. So these tendencies to want everything to be a certain way are really prominent. And I know a lot of us can relate to that feeling, but what is it like to just let something be as it is, but also make sure that there is attention being paid to doing that so that it's not a careless imperfection, but it's actually one that is helping a learning process. And that is what I, I took away um, as the person who's hosting and interviewing. And during this first episode, what I'm noticing the most is my own sense of fragility, given that this topic is such a minefield. And I know that not being an expert in the topic, but having an expertise in the mindfulness realm, in the container within which this is held, um, to really try to foster the sense of how can we be in these spaces with people who don't say all the right things, but who are trying. And I keep reminding myself of that. I am also trying. I am also willing to put myself out there, even if imperfectly, to learn. And I have learned so much from each person that I've spoken with. And after the fact, um, in conversations that I've had with them and others. So that was my takeaway, my main takeaway. And we chose to not re-record anything that I said, even though I wanted to, um, for this reason, because we can't go back and redo conversations, kind of erase them and start over, but we learn from them. We notice something and we learn from them. And so that's what I'm attempting to model here. So I hope that's useful. If you have any constructive criticism uh, or anything you would feel might be helpful to point out as we move forward in further episodes, you're welcome to reach out to me at mindfullywhite at gmail.com. I thank you so much for your time and listening. I hope you found this useful and I really encourage you to share it with others that you think might be interested. And we really look forward to having you join us in episode number two. Thank you. Thank you.